This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. On this week's episode, amid growing opposition, several Louisiana energy and chemical companies have aligned with pro-business groups to create the Louisiana Industry Sustainability Council. According to a new report, Louisiana leads the nation in the percentage of people in prisons who committed their crimes as juveniles. And as Walter Cohen High School transfers to a new charter group, many parents are wondering what that means for the future of its associated daycare facility. Those stories, insight, and analysis coming up on Behind the Lens. Joining us this week, Pam Radke, the managing editor for Gulf Coast coverage from Floodlight. Hi, Pam. Hi. Thanks for being here. Criminal justice reporter Nick Krastel's here. Hi, Nick. Hey, Carolyn. And education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, Marta. Hey, Carolyn. Pam, up first with you, thanks for your time today. Several energy and chemical companies in the state, along with business boosting groups like Chambers of Commerce and the like, have created the Louisiana Industry Sustainability Council. It was originally called the Industry Defense Council. What did you find out about this group and why it was formed in the first place? Um, sure. Well, thanks for, for talking about this. So we, we got a tip from a source that... Um, this was a couple of months ago, that uh, industry folks, economic development folks, and parish officials were meeting on parish property to talk about a campaign against um, Michael Bloomberg and Michael Bloomberg's um, new Beyond Petrochemicals campaign to fight. So that, that campaign is to try to stop the, I want to say it's, 120 maybe facilities that are planned in Louisiana, Texas, and Pennsylvania. And at first, you know, they were they were talking about this, and I didn't think much of it because we're in Louisiana. And I when when they were talking about the parish presidents, that's not unusual, right? I mean, our a lot of the a lot of the parish officials um, are very in you know in favor of industry, and it's important to their economies. But what did catch my attention later on a month later was when the list came out and there was somebody from LCMC Health Mm. uh, in the group. Um, And LCMC is uh, the owner of New Orleans uh, Children's Hospital. Right. Uh, And that just really caught my attention. It was very, (laughs) very eye opening to to see that. so what I've learned, and then I got some slides that were sent to me um, from a February and a March meeting. I attended a meeting, or I listened in on a meeting that GNO had uh, briefly about this industry sustainability council. What it sounds, what it, what it appears that they're doing is just kind of coalescing around, um, you know, trying to spin industry in a more positive manner, making sure that the public gets the quote correct information. Um, They really want to emphasize how the industry is, uh, you know, builds our economy, pays taxes, you know, provides well-paying jobs. Um, But on the flip side of it, you know, obviously it also results in um, high pollution, um, you know, in in a, a 
you know, destroying certain, you know, lives of enslaved people as we saw or we see that's going on in St. James Parish. Right. The timing of it is particularly interesting with the Banner Sisters and some of the, the more successful um, efforts that some of these grassroots organizations have, have mounted, but they wouldn't um, necessarily acknowledge that this was in response to any of that. Right. Yeah. They, I asked them specifically that question and they said, no, it's not out of fear. We just want to make sure the message gets out right. But the earlier slides and information show specifically that, and I can't, I heard this, I don't know if it was in the slides, but basically uh, they wanted to go after the, um, the grannies in river parishes. Um, <laughs> and they somehow, you know, think that that's a small um, special interest group that is, is in, um, are in these parishes. And, in, you know, they have stopped five or six, say, between, you know, around Cancer Alley, they have stopped five or six different plants, I think, since about 2018. Um, and it is quite remarkable what they have been able to do just with the small group. Um, and, and then the question becomes, and as um, they told me, like, if, they, if, if we can do this, with no money, think about what we can do with money. And so Michael Bloomberg, the Bloomberg uh, Philanthropies is distributing $85 million in three states to the nonprofits who are who are working against new chemical and petrochemical plants. Um, so yeah, a, a group that has started with, I think, um, I think uh, one of the groups was saying that they started with $500 out of their own personal bank account, mm, you know, and, yeah. and Rise St. James started in the garage of Sharon Levine's house and then moved into her den, you know, so it's not like that these people had money and they were, they were successful in their efforts. So, uh, yeah. Right. It's classic kind of David and Goliath story, but has the money, the money has started to be distributed or remind the timing. Yes. Yes. I think that the, I think, think some of the grantees have been, have been named, that they they definitely I know um, I know the Descendants Projects uh, Bucket Brigade um, you know Rye St James um, are among those that have received or will receive money but I don't know about the timing if they actually have it in their bank account yet. Okay, when I read your story, it's fascinating to me that now the David and Goliath situation almost seems like it's been flipped on its head that these these the industry groups these multi-billion dollar corporations, multinational corporations, along with um, you know, local uh, pro-business organizations are now crying poor. They're saying, oh, you know, we're just trying to compete with, with, the, with the super deep pockets of someone like Michael Bloomberg. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I, I don't know that it's a David and Goliath. I think it's like, you know, a, a David and Goliath and Goliath thinks he's losing. So he wants to get more stones <laughs> or something or get bigger feet. Um, you know, it's, it's, it is ironic. Um, and I, you know, they, they say in their literature in these slides that we don't have 85 million and actually they, uh, I think they rounded up to a hundred million. Like we don't have a hundred million to counter these efforts, right? which is just, uh, a little comical considering the record profits that a lot of these companies have been pulling in. To be sure. Right. Yeah. Another thing that I found uh, crafty, 
I suppose would be the right characterization is the use of the word sustainability in their name now. Mm-hmm. That's not wrong. <laughs> they don't want to go away. They want to sustain their business. That's a perfect name. <laughs> it's a perfect name. Yeah. The kind of savvy that it shows on a, on a um, PR sense with, you know, the nose to utilize a term like sustainability in their name. It's a clever move. That's what I'll say. It's a clever move. So you referred earlier to, I think, five um, projects that had been stopped by grannies and uh, what did they call them? Grannies and... I can't remember. There was a, it was, it was a, it was an alliteration. It was something grannies. It started with a G and I can't remember what it was. Um, okay. Yeah. So there, there were, there have been five projects that have been stopped with just, just from grassroots activism. Yeah. And, and also, well, it's, it's not necessarily earth justice has had a big role in some of these. Um, and then the two Tulane environmental law center, which by the way, they tar they, they mention in some of their literature that they need to target the environmental law center as you know, as they don't say rabble rousers, but it's implied that they need to put pressure on Tulane and the Tulane environmental law clinic. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean the Formosa plant, uh, that was, that was halted last fall along with the, um, uh, methanol plant that was halted. Those were both in St. James, the Wanwa, uh, plastics plant that was, um, stopped a year or two before that. And then now, you know, the, the complaint that brought the EPA lawsuit against Denka for its uh, pollution and neoprene production. And there were a couple of more that are, are just, I can't remember off the top of my head, which ones those were, but, um, but they've had good success, which, you know, after, after a history of, you know, basically all these plants and companies moving in there without any, uh, repercussions is surprising. Right. Well, I, I will say that, um, you know, that this is not the first time industry has, has tried campaigns like this. Uh, in the, in 2008, they had a, the Louisiana chemical chemistry association had a massive 7.7 or 8 point plan to counter opposition, including, you know, having people, um, talk about the myth of cancer alley and talk about the, uh, talk about how there's no substantive um, link between cancer and Louisiana, which is, which is really been pushed. Um, And, you know, and it actually had success apparently changed public opinion by like 10%. So what does this look like after they start spending their money on this campaign? Will, will people in Louisiana and Texas start to be inundated like they are in the run up to an election with pro messages around some of these plants? Um, possibly. Um, it does say, you know, they, they intend to do billboards and media buys, political advocacy. So it, the billboard seems like we already have a lot of billboards from the industry. So I don't right. know exactly what they would, what they would say. Um, there was some mention in, um, one of the meetings that, that, uh, they were discuss- discussing creating a PAC to support these efforts. Mm. Uh, so it, it sounds like they would either vet or support candidates who supported them. Well, Pam, thank you for your time. Sure. Thank you. Bye. 
You're listening to Behind the Lens. I'm Carolyn Heldman. My guests this week are Pam Radke, managing editor of Gulf Coast Coverage for Floodlight, a nonprofit newsroom that partners with local and national outlets to investigate the corporate and ideological interests driving climate inaction. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle and education reporter Marta Jusen. Hi, I'm Joshua Rosenberg, environmental reporter at The Lens. When the world changes dramatically, you rely even more on The Lens to deliver the context and perspective that's essential to our understanding in difficult times. But the truth is, you rely on us for essential news and information every single day, whether it's a historic day or an ordinary day. And your ongoing support ensures that The Lens will be there for you when you need it. Become a supporter with a tax-deductible donation right now at thelensnola.org. Thank you. Nick, a new report by the national nonprofit Human Rights for Kids has found that the degree to which the United States punishes crimes committed by kids is far out of line with international standards, calling the mass incarceration of children as adults one of the largest government-sanctioned human rights abuses against children in the world today. Meanwhile, Louisiana has one of the largest percentages of adults serving in prison who committed the crimes as kids. Tell us what we learned. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Louisiana actually has the highest percentage of their adult prison population who committed uh, the, the crimes that they were convicted of as as kids, so under, under 18 years old. Uh, so about 7% of the prison population in Louisiana, this report found, um, are people who committed committed the crime they're they're in in uh, prison for as kids. And you know, this is sort of the first time I've seen at least the a comparison, a statewide comparison of of these numbers. And you know, it's it's pretty startling. It's over double the national average. Um, I think to some extent in Louisiana, we're used to being at the top of lists in terms of incarceration. We've you know, for right. a long time had the had the highest incarceration rate in the country. Um, and now I believe I believe our second. Um, but this is just kind of one more thing that that we're leading in. And I think for for, you know, policymakers and advocates, it's kind of one more data point showing kind of how far um, out of step we are with with the rest of the country and, and with the rest of the world. Um, you you talk in your in your piece about that it there's a direct correlation between the numbers of of people in prison that we're talking about who committed crimes as children who are now adults but that but they they're you know they're in prison for these crimes that were were committed before they were 18 and the change in the laws um yeah and- so so for for a long time Louisiana automatically treated 17-year-olds as adults in in the criminal legal system. And and we're only, you know, I think at the time, we're only one of around 10 states that did it. Um, that law changed in 2016, and it was it was celebrated by advocates. It was the, the raise the age law, um, and it, it changed it so that so that 17-year-olds would be treated as juveniles in the criminal legal system. Now, 17-year-olds and, and, and children as young as 14 can be transferred to adult court. So there's still 
for for some crimes the ability for prosecutors to to charge kids as adults and and they do uh, uh you know relatively frequently but that the sort of compulsory treatment of 17 year olds was um was changed but now there is some debate about whether or not to bring that back uh law enforcement the da's associations the sheriff's associations are saying that kind of a recent rise in crime is basically the direct result of of this change of the race the age law um you know opponents of the legislation basically say that there's not really evidence for that and that you know regardless we need to be you know thinking about other solutions rather than um charging charging kids as adults in order right. to kind of ad address these public safety issues and and i think that this report showing the degree to which we have already been treating you know kids as adults had they they would argue hasn't kept us any safer you know we're doing it far more than any any other state um or i shouldn't say far more than any other state but far more than most states um and and more than any other state so so that's kind of how how this report may or may not inform uh the debates going on at the legislature right now right we've also have talked several times in the past on this podcast about um the the overcrowding and how there have been there's been a problem with um housing the juveniles remember yeah. we talked about kids being shipped out of state right and i think that's part of actually what uh some law enforcement would argue is the reason they want to start treating 17 year olds as adults because they would then be brought to an adult jail right the thing is though that under federal law 17 year olds still need to be separated from an adult jail or prison population and require complete sound and sight separation. Um, so whether or not, you know, changing this law would actually free up space or just create a new issue um, where, you know, local jails are going to have to make sure they have sufficient space to house these kids um, where they won't be, you know, with the general adult population um, is, is kind of, you know, something that, that people are arguing about in, in, in this discussion. Mm -hmm. And, but certainly, yeah, the, there is an issue with, um, overcrowding in juvenile facilities, local parishes, not having space to, to house kids in juvenile detention. Um, and also there, they argue that, the, that some of these 17 year olds are, are on the older end in these facilities and can be, more disruptive and and uh, can can bully or take advantage of the younger kids in in these facilities as mm. well. Can you talk about the constitutionality question? Yeah, so so recent Supreme Court rulings found that mandatory life without parole for juveniles is unconstitutional. Okay. Um, so what now needs to happen is that a court needs to find that certain exceptional circumstances are. Uh, are met in order to to sentence a, a child to, to life without parole. So each individual uh, case is has to be decided individually. There can't be a there's no blanket rule. Yeah, that's right. And actually, life without parole is not even an option for any juveniles in, in Louisiana. Um, I'm not sure what the law has changed at some point. Um, so now the, the maximum sentence is life in prison with the possibility of parole after 25 years. Okay. Okay. But what that does is 
advocates for these for these kids would suggest that putting a, a someone who commits a crime at 16 into jail for 25 years possibly getting parole after 20 years or something is really not addressing right. well, the actual problem. There, and there's no guarantee of, you know, 25 years, there's no guarantee that you get, get parole right, right then. I mean, you may, you may never get parole. Right. Uh, that that's at the discretion of, of the parole board and has to do with your, you know, conduct in prison. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, exactly right. I mean, advocates would say these, these are kids and oftentimes kids who have experienced immense trauma um, in, in their own childhoods and, and have, um, you know, th they would argue really deserve um, rehabilitation and treatment, which is ostensibly the goal of the juvenile system, um, more so than, than the adult prison system is to, to, to really rehabilitate rather, rather than punish. And the number of the percentage of, of black kids that are now adults, but that committed the crimes as juveniles is, is not in line with the percentage overall of, of the black population in Louisiana. Is it much higher? Yeah, it's over, it's over 80%. Um, and, and not only is it, is it much higher than the, uh, you know, percentage, the, the black population in the state overall, but it's much higher than the, uh, percentage of black people in the, in the prison population. So, you know, I think what it suggests is that we're really much more likely to look at a, a black child under the age of 18 who's alleged to have committed a crime and say, you know, this person needs to be treated treated harshly and, and, and you know, transferred to the adult system. I think where you were going with that, it suggests that, that in the report they link that this treatment to the, the criminal legal system has, has ties back to a, a racist lineage. Yeah, that's exactly right. So they they tie it, you know, all the way back to, to slavery and, and reconstruction and, and you know, point to, uh, you know, they point specifically to the non-unanimous jury law as sort of uh, the, one of the vestiges of, of this, you know, inherently racist criminal legal system. Um, and then also point to kind of the super predator era of the 90s when, you know, there was this real push to to get much harsher with with kids who, who have committed crimes and, um, you know, juvenile transfers to adult court really ramped up during, during that period. Mm. Uh, you have had a lot of rhetoric around, uh, um, yeah. The crackdown uh, on crime. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That was the Clinton era. It was. Yeah. Okay. Nick, thank you. Thank you. Okay. Marta, New Orleans college prep was an early charter startup in the city. Over the years, they grew to three charter schools, but then slowly lost all of them as bad state ratings started to appear. Now, the very last school of a New Orleans college prep, the Walter Cohen High School, is being transferred to a new charter group. Tell us what that means for the Associated Daycare, the Hoffman Learning Center, and what's going to happen to it. Yeah, so New Orleans College Prep, um, like you said, was kind of one of those legacy startups after Katrina, um, you know, in the era of education reform and coming in, moving in, um, they came over and take over, took over a handful of schools. And like you also said, they slowly have lost them all due to failing state ratings. So, you know, Cohen now is starting to wind down. They're, I think, down to like 100 or so students, which is really, really small for a high school. Uh, but they're being transferred over to collegiate academies. But when New Orleans College Prep was kind of ramping up a little more, 
you know, they they took it upon themselves to start an early learning center, this daycare that would, you know, have more of an educational focus, um, a little more, I guess, what you, you know, would kind of call like school prep versus maybe just a standard sort of daycare mm. style. And, you know, with that promise, this is called Hoffman Early Learning Center, um, was that this Hoffman Early Le Learning Center would grow into a school. So it's it's one of just many, many sort of, you know, promises that came up in this era and then slowly, uh, you know, things either uh, come to fruition or they don't. And then right. in this case, um, that's not quite going to happen. <laughs> but the, for now, the daycare is going to remain open and operate independently with that charter board still overseeing it. It's just, you know, it's kind of this complicated um, detangling of, you know, this entity is what would be a private daycare now from this public, essentially, charter group that's been held to, to public laws. I'm curious about whether or not, while we've got these other um, measurements by which we, we judge uh, these schools and also by which um, this organization lost their schools, is there a similar or grading system for early learning facilities at all, or, or do they just operate completely out of the, out of the realm of that grading system? So there, there can be associated with schools if you're, if you're teaching those grades, but then kind of the separate thing to look at and focus on is I believe it's through the department of health, um, which would, you know, license a daycare facility or early learning facility. And that's where you're going to see um, more of those reports that public, public reports that are available about the, you know, the status of the school, um, when they came in and did a visit, did the school have the right ratio of teachers to, you know, adults to babies and adults to toddlers and um, that, those types of kind of a, a little more on like the safety side of things and the actual physical presence of a space um, versus, you know, academic curriculum or test scores or something like that. Right. With, with Walter Cohen moving do you think that will negatively impact the um, enrollment, the enrollment at the daycare? They're actually not at the same site right now. Okay. Because Cohen, yeah. Um, I don't think it will. I think there's, I think there's actually a lot, um, you know, or we have some daycares that are um, enrolling either teachers or students as kids. I think in this case, it's a, it has been a little more geared towards ed education professionals um, and their children. Okay. And at least anecdotally, that's what I can tell you. <laughs> mm, right, right, right. Um, the, the daycare operates on school district property though. What, how does, it does. that impact so it? So when a different charter school closed down, college prep bought these trailers that the other school operated in and then moved them to this land that was owned by the Orleans Parish School Board and started Hoffman. So like I said before, we, you know, we now again have this kind of detangling of public versus private. Um, and typically what would happen here is when a charter group loses all its charters, they have to return property that right. would have been bought with public money. Now, in this case, I did talk to the Orleans Parish School Board, and they said that Hoffman, you know, still is operating under a good lease, and they, you know, I don't know the exact termination date of that lease, but that they will have the the land and be able to use those buildings. And, you know, College Prep's CEO has said that the daycare will operate for the foreseeable future um, and is financially viable. Um, but there is still, I think, some questions in the back of my mind are, you know, how, do we need to renegotiate that lease? Are we, are those trailers going to be donated mm. essentially? You know, there's just, 
just kind of some little messy uh, Loose things ends. to tie up at yeah. the end there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So one other thing I want to ask you about that it sounded like Hoffman had a had a um, pretty ambitious agenda or or growth plan to start that they wanted to begin as a daycare facility and then eventually turn into a full K through eight school. Are there any other examples of, of, um, daycare facilities that in fact did do that? You know, I can't think of anyone off the top of my head. There are a handful of schools who did start out with concentrated, either just kindergarten classes or K one classes that have grown over time and maybe with a pre K four, but not that I can think of that would have had this uh, more of a birth to three model and then grew into a school. And, you know, the timing on that, I think, was it, it was ambitious. And it was also in this era in 2015 when they opened, when, you know, everyone in New Orleans thought New Orleans was going to keep growing. And here we are eight years later. And those, you know, those kindergarten populations, the the birth rate has dropped and those numbers just aren't coming through. So right. the district is dealing with the opposite problem right now, which is that they have too many school buildings and not enough students. Mm, right. And then you said that the, the charter group, the New Orleans College Prep, will continue to stay intact just to oversee what remains of, of their organization, which is now just the, the early learning center. Yep. So Hoffman's um, executive director is just going to report directly to the board. Um, and that appears to be how they're going to operate um, in the foreseeable future. Do you think that Hoffman will eventually go under the umbrella of another charter group? You know, that's a really good question. It, it's There's such, I feel like, different operations to maintain that it, mm. it's possible that it's easier to just kind of like stay in daycare and not be kind of taking care of both like Department of Education um Hmm. you know, requirements. And, and um, if they don't have, you know, the kind of the property or the access space to grow into that K-8 school, um, I'm, I think it's more likely to probably just remain a daycare. But it, it's very, you know, I think it's very desirable for people to enroll their kids in a school or a daycare that would grow into their school. And, you know, yeah. a lot of parents want to send their kids to pre-K where they're, they're going to go to kindergarten. Exactly. So, it's a very good question because I do think that's a very appealing arrangement for people to, you know, keep that consistency for their kids. Right. Exactly. Okay. Well, thank you, Marta. Thanks, Carolyn. All right, you guys. Thank you for your time. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. This is Behind the Lens, a podcast from The Lens, New Orleans' first nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest newsroom. I'm Carolyn Heldman. Thanks to our guest this week, Pam Radke, managing editor of Gulf Coast Coverage for Floodlight, a nonprofit newsroom that partners with local and national outlets to investigate the corporate and ideological interests driving climate inaction. Criminal justice reporter Nick Crastle, and education reporter Marta Jusen. You can read all the week's other news plus opinions at our website, thelensnola.org. Thanks for listening.